Hi everyone, this is Rashad. Welcome to a special edition of Newsbeat, the award-winning social justice podcast mixing journalism and original verses from independent artists. So we're doing something a little different today. If you've been following Newsbeat from the beginning, well, if you haven't, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download pods and leave a rating and review. You know that we often focus on criminal justice, given the fact that America has the highest incarceration rate in the world. In recent months, however, we've noticed a shift. State legislatures across the country are increasingly debating measures to reform their respective criminal justice systems, whether it's seeking to address bail, parole and probation, or disproportionately long sentences for nonviolent offenses. We've also seen Democratic candidates discussing these issues along the campaign trail. To date, laws have been passed in New York, Colorado, New Mexico, Oregon, Connecticut, and elsewhere. You can learn more about all this on usnewsbeat.com in a recently published article titled Criminal Justice Reform is Spreading Across the Country, But Is It Enough to Dismantle Mass Incarceration? Because some of our interviews for that story were so fascinating, we decided to feature a few snippets here on the podcast. Additionally, we want to address a few notable events that have happened over the last few weeks and months that perhaps you didn't notice. First, there is an actual forum on poverty, featuring some of the most high-profile contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination. We'll end this special podcast episode with a conversation about felony disenfranchisement in Florida with Julie Ebenstein, senior staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project. We covered this issue last year in a podcast episode titled The Real Voter Fraud, Felony Disenfranchisement's Civil Death Sentence. But this May, the state's GOP-controlled legislature passed a law making it harder for its 1.4 million newly eligible voters to exercise these fundamental rights. We'll get to that in a bit. But first, let's return to criminal justice reform. Starting us off is Rachel Barkow, a law professor and faculty director at the NYU Center on the Administration of Criminal Law. She's also a former member of the Federal Sentencing Commission and the author of a new book, Prisoners of Politics, released this spring in which she argues for a more analytical and non-political approach to criminal justice reform. Our other special guest is Pennsylvania State Representative Jordan Harris, the Democratic Whip, who has been working across the aisle to try and pass reform in his home state. These are really good reforms, but there is no way they'll get us out of mass incarceration. The studies show it'll take us 75 years at this pace just to cut the population in half. And that assumes that we continue at the same pace, which seems unlikely because at a certain point you run out of reforms that are politically palatable. And if crime goes up, it'll be really hard to get some things passed. So I, I, I don't think the reforms we're seeing right now are sufficient for that, for the kind of large scale reduction in imprisonment. They are not going to come close to that. Um, but, and this is the good news part of it, um, you know, they are very good reforms that we're seeing um, and they could have an impact, just not as one that is up to the task of really making a dent in mass incarceration. So, you know, for example, I would say the New York reform to open up the files of prosecutors to defense counsel before they have to make decisions about pleading guilty. You know, that's big. That That's going to make a really big difference in the way that 
prosecutors and defense lawyers interact in New York. It's it's really going to um, improve those negotiations. It's going to catch cases where someone is innocent more often than under the old regime. It's going to give defendants, you know, better equal playing field status to try to figure out if they should plead guilty. So, you know, that's the kind of reform that's a really, you know, it's a good thing. I, I hope and kind of expect <laughs> that, that we'll see other states pass something like that once they see the experience in New York, because basically New York was able to do it because Texas had already done it. And that helped get it passed here. And, and I think that'll kind of continue where other states can borrow from each other. So, I mean, I, I would say the things we're seeing are good, but they're just, they're modest in terms of the scope of what mass incarceration is. To bring up the federal policies, the federal legislation has been very modest. You know, so some states have gone further. So I use New York as an example. We have cut our prison population pretty dramatically and have had really good reforms. The federal legislation that passed, the First Step Act, again, I think it's a good piece of legislation. I'm glad it was passed, but it's really going to be have modest effects in the federal systems. We've seen about a thousand people in the federal system get released under the terms of that act. Uh, it has one provision in it that is retroactive, that affects people who are currently incarcerated today, that would make them eligible for lower sentences. And that is because in 2010, Congress changed the ratio between crack and powder. I don't know how much you follow this stuff, but you know, before you'd need a hundred times the quantity of powder cocaine to trigger the same mandatory minimum that you would need if it was crack cocaine. So that was known as the 100 to 1 ratio, and it resulted in super long punishments for people who were charged with crack cocaine offenses. Disproportionately black men, I mean, overwhelmingly so. So, you know, and getting decades in prison for it. And that was like 1980s legislation. Finally, in 2010, Congress changed that ratio so that it was 18 to 1. So you'd need 18 times the quantity of uh, powder to yield those same mandatory minimums. Still not one to one, which is frankly what it should be, um, but better. But it never made any of those changes retroactive. And there has been a push now since then to make it retroactive. So it just kind of gives you an example of what I'm talking about with a really slow pace. So you get a law passed in, you know, 1986 that sets this ridiculous ratio that has no empirical basis whatsoever. You have people serving decades in prison for it, mostly black men. It doesn't get modified at all until 2010. So, you know, two and a half decades later, it's finally tweaked. But it's not made retroactive until 2019, you know, 30 years later. So we're really talking about um, modest change. And so those now, now we're starting to see some of those people get sentence reductions under the First Step Act, which is a good thing. But, you know, it's not that many are left. You know, maybe we'll have a, a thousand or so, maybe 2,000 people. You, you could get the, the data from the Sentencing Commission. I just haven't looked to see what the exact numbers are. But that's the only thing that's retroactive in that legislation. Everything else is just changing things going forward for sentencing. And they're really minor adjustments. It's, you know, basically adjusting some mandatory minimums uh, downward, but they're still there. You know, we still have pretty harsh mandatory minimums. And then there's another part of the legislation that um, allows people to earn their good time credits. They, you're supposed to get 85% of your sentence off each year, and the way the Bureau of Prisons used to calculate it was they were basically kind of cheating people out of seven days per year. So that change was also made, and that's retroactive, but, you know, that's just a few days per year. So everything in there is just, I would say, pretty 
modest. You know, I think that's why they called it the First Step Act. They recognized that it was only the beginning of what will hopefully be more changes. The new year could mean a clean slate for Pennsylvanians with low-level criminal records. A new law law has gone into effect to help those folks move forward. Over the summer, Pennsylvania lawmakers passed the Clean Slate Law, a first of its kind in the U.S. Many times Pennsylvania is last or close to last in getting things done. But when it comes to clean slate, we are first. The Clean Slate Law is designed to help people with criminal convictions in their past, a past that can prevent them from getting housing or jobs even decades later. When I first ran for office, um, one of the things that we talked about was criminal justice reform. I kind of looked at it on two levels. One of the issues I talked about was education, the other one was criminal justice reform. I talked about it because I felt, one, they were so intertwined. Um, When you look at a lot of folks in our justice system, many of them are lacking some type of formal education. But the additional issue to me was, in my community that I represented, I mean, I I couldn't walk down the street without running into somebody who had a criminal record. And not only did they have a criminal record, but all of the collateral consequences that affected them in their life because of of that record. So for me, uh, and then uh, and then from being quite honest, just family members, you know, family members who are just like, yo, 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 Jay, can you help me get a job? And I'm like, all right, well, let me help you. And then when you go to help them, you find out all of the barriers to helping them become gainfully employed. That was kind of the, the impetus for uh, me wanting to be involved in how we uh, fix this criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is, is, is huge. It's a juggernaut. Just in Pennsylvania, it's the third largest line item that we have um, behind the Department of Human Services and the Department of Education. Um, we spend about $2.4 billion on criminal justice just in, in the state of Pennsylvania. And, and let me let me be clear. 2.4 is just on corrections. That's not all of the other uh, departments that, that feed in. We're talking 2.4. Um, um, billion dollars, right? So that's just the cost. But then there are all of the things that I call collateral consequences. Inability to get work, inability to get licensed in in certain things. Just a a myriad of things that a person who has a conviction now finds themselves unable to do. Now let's step back for a second. One of the reasons why Pennsylvania's corrections budget is so strikingly exorbitant is because in the last 40 years, its prison population has grown 850%, while the number of penitentiaries went from seven to more than two dozen. Since 2012, the state's prison population has dropped by 4,200, which is significant. Yet on any given day, there's more than 80,000 people in the state's prisons and jails combined. One of the largest drivers of incarceration are parole and probation violations, and that's something Harris and other lawmakers are trying to address with a House bill called HB 1555, which was introduced this spring. You know, there are all of these kind of uh, potholes for people to fall into when they're on probation and parole, and because of that, they're sent back to jail. Um, What we're looking to do is change how that works, right? Currently, you get a violation, you can be sent back to, you can be arrested, put in jail, and then you have to wait in jail until you get a hearing to determine whether the judge will continue uh, uh, your probation or parole. What we want to do is change it so that if there's a violation, 
uh, you don't automatically go back to jail. Um, you get to stay out and you get to then let the judge decide to put you back in or not. And here's why that's important. In Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia County, um, back in May of 2018, those are the most recent stats that we have, almost half of the people in Philadelphia jails uh, were there for probation and parole violations. They're on what we call detainer, just waiting for for their hearing. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, if it's a new crime, uh, we understand. Yes, you committed a new crime. Yes. But if this is just a technical violation, you're waiting for a violation hearing to determine whether you should be out or not. It, just, it doesn't make sense. And here's why. A person can sit a month, two, three, six months waiting for their hearing. By that time, they've lost their job, they've lost their place to live, and, and, and a whole lot of other collateral consequences. When we already know that this is a tough population to get employed, to get housing, and to get all of those other things. So we're, we're becoming an impediment and not a help. Now, let's turn to poverty. Since we're unfortunately pretty confident this critical issue won't get the attention it demands from presidential hopefuls, we wanted to bring you back to last year when we produced an episode on the Poor People's Campaign, a mass movement intended to be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, which continued forward despite his murder in 1968. While that campaign was recently revived, and when we spoke with Reverend Liz Theo Harris, its co-chair, she was touring some of the most impoverished communities in our country. Here's a bit of what she told us. Just all across this nation, there's a real crisis, a crisis of wages, a crisis of housing, a crisis of the lack of health care, lack of adequate food and education, where 140 million people in this country are living in poverty or with low incomes. Poverty really affects people of all nationalities, all colors, all creeds in this country. The majority of poor people in this country are actually white in real numbers. Although poverty does disproportionately impact people of color. The average homeless person in this country is a, a nine-year-old white girl. That's the face of homelessness and a lot of other faces. Just recently, some of the presumed heavyweights for the Democratic nomination attended a presidential forum sponsored by the Poor People's Campaign. Among them, Senators Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and former VP Joe Biden. Here are some highlights. Truth is that percentage-wise, more African-Americans and Latinos earn low wages. But numerically speaking, more whites earn low wages. More whites don't have health insurance. More whites can't afford to send their kids to college. So our job is to take on Trump's divisiveness and his racism and his xenophobia and his religious bigotry and bring people together. One of the keystones, central parts of what I talk about now in my campaign is that we start in America with a wealth tax. We need to put a tax on the top one-tenth of one percent, the biggest fortunes in this country. And here's the idea behind it. It's a two-cent tax. It says once you've got $50 million, your first $50 million, fine. But you're, I know you've relaxed over that now, right? But when you hit that 50 millionth and first dollar, 
you got to pitch in two cents and two cents for every dollar after that. It's a tax on wealth. It's a tax on the great fortunes in this country. And understand this, it's not a tax to say there's something bad or you've done something bad. It's to say you built a great fortune in this country. You had some great idea. You worked really hard or you inherited well, whichever way. But the point is, if that fortune was built here in America, I guarantee it was built at least in part using workers all of us help pay to educate. It's one of the biggest issues that we are talking the least about, and we have got to deal with it. Um, in 99% of the counties in the United States, if you are a minimum wage worker working full time, you cannot afford market rate for a one bedroom apartment. That's the reality in America today. And so I am proposing what I call the Rent Relief Act. So for renters who are paying more than 30% of their income in rent plus utilities, they will receive a tax credit so that they can be able to get through the month paying rent. And here's how I feel about it. I also connected to the issue of what we need to do around equal pay. I connected to the issue of what we need to do to raise the minimum wage. When we talk about people in poverty, well, we know that the numbers are such that if you pay attention to federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour, those are poverty wages. That's $15,000 a year. So I also support what we need to do, and I'm an advocate for it. I was actually marching with folks in Vegas a couple of days ago, picketing McDonald's, about what we need to do to lift up the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour, but a livable wage for folks. So there is that piece. There's a rent piece. There's about livable wage. What we also need to do is understand that in America today, almost half of American families cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense. That could be the car breaks down, that could be a health, health bill you didn't see coming. $400 unexpected expense can topple the stability of that family. In America today, in 99% of the counties, minimum wage workers can't afford a one bedroom apartment. In America last year, 12 million people took out a loan of on average $400 from the payday lender at an interest rate often in excess of 300%. These are the realities of America today. There isn't a single reason in the world why every single solitary child in America is not covered by health insurance. There isn't a single reason in the world why any parent having to pay for daycare should in fact not have a $8,000 tax credit. I was a single parent for five years after my wife and daughter were killed and my sons were badly injured. And I had a lot of help. And I had the salary of a senator then at 42,000 bucks. And I found it hard. I, find, I can only imagine what it is for single parents trying to raise a child on a minimum wage. We have to raise the minimum wage to a minimum of $15 an hour. It's, it's disgraceful that someone works 40 hours a week and lives in poverty. We have to, there's a whole lot of other things I could speak to, but the bottom line is, I think your budget, my dad had an expression. She'd say, some come to my dad and say, let me tell you what I value, Joe. He said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. I will tell you what you value. These guys don't value education. They don't value the poor. They don't value any of the things we're talking about right now. Now, on to Florida. The Sunshine State last year appeared to make significant strides to protect voting rights when the public overwhelmingly passed a referendum 
called Amendment 4, which allowed people formally convicted of a felony and who completed all the conditions of their sentence regain voting rights. It was estimated to help upwards of 1.4 million people. But in May, the Florida legislature approved a measure that advocates say would make it much harder for them to have their voting rights restored. To help us better understand how we got here, we welcome Julie Ebenstein, senior staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. All right, Julie, you know voting rights has become a hugely important issue in America, especially in 2018 when there are many complaints of voter suppression in high-stakes elections. Why was the passage of Amendment 4 in Florida so important? Well, Amendment 4, which um, restored the right to vote to probably 1.4 million people in Florida, it was the largest expansion of the electorate in the country um, since the 26th Amendment uh, lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. So uh, Florida was such an outlier in uh, how many people it disenfranchised and how long that a change like that in Florida, um, coming from from the voters of Florida, brought more people into the voting public, into the electorate, than any other change this country has seen in decades. It was it was hugely significant. Julie, can you give us a national perspective in terms of felony disenfranchisement? I know there's several states like Florida that had similar laws in place. Can you just talk about that briefly? Sure. So um, prior to Amendment 4, the, the old regime in Florida made Florida a real outlier in how they dealt with felony disenfranchisement. Florida used to be one of only four states that took away somebody's right to vote for life for any felony conviction. So that could include, at the time, theft of a few hundred dollars, crimes committed as a juvenile, as a teenager, if somebody was charged as an adult. Um, one mistake in Florida prior to Amendment 4 and people were never given a second chance to vote according to their interests and to be represented by their legislators. Nationwide, there's a variety of different ways that states treat uh, restoration of the right to vote, but Florida was certainly on the very extreme. Uh, Because the laws were so strict in Florida before Amendment 4, about one in 10 people, adults in Florida, were disenfranchised. That included about one in five African-American Floridians. So the prior laws in Florida not only had a massive disenfranchising effect, but they were totally out of step with every other state and, and really with the rest of the world when it comes to a completely unforgiving regime for excluding somebody from their community for the rest of their life because of one mistake. What the voters of Florida voted for with Amendment 4 was to give people second chances, restore their right to vote, and really bring them back fully as a participating member of their community once they finish their sentence. Now, just to add a little more context, besides the issue of felony disenfranchisement specifically, weren't there also major complaints about Florida's Clemency Review Board, of which former governor and now Senator Rick Scott was a member of? From what I understand, they weren't doing a great job of restoring rights to people. Is that correct? There's a lot of problems with having lifetime disenfranchisement the way that Florida did prior to Amendment 4, and then leaving it to a clemency board at their discretion as the only route uh, back to restoration. And we really saw that in practice with Governor Scott. Prior to Governor Scott's term in office, Governor Christ put in place a set of rules that allowed for automatic restoration for people with certain convictions and an opportunity to get their rights restored for other people. When Governor Scott came in in 2011, he changed the clemency board rules, 
requiring a waiting period of five to seven years after the completion of somebody's sentence before they could even apply to have their rights restored. Once they applied, he granted restoration in very, very, very few cases. So in 2011, we really saw the the ability for people to get their rights restored uh, through clemency restricted and and uh, basically turned off or, or turned down to a trickle. You know, and you can you can imagine some of the problems of leaving it to administration by administration to decide who should have their rights restored because you have that ability to the clemency process expanded by one governor and then retracted um, in a really extreme way, as it was by Governor Scott, by another. And I, I think Amendment 4 really showed that, that the voters of Florida were tired of that. They were tired of politicians interfering with and, and messing around with their right to vote basically within the politician's own self-interest. So they, uh, voters attempted to solve it once and for all through Amendment 4 to standardize the way that people got their rights restored and to restore rights much, much more broadly. So you just mentioned how voters were tired of politicians getting in the way. Well, in May, the Florida legislature, as you know, passed a measure that, according to advocates, undercuts sort of the spirit of the amendment. So what does this new law do? I know that Governor DeSantis hasn't yet signed it, is planning on doing so. So what does this proposed law do exactly? Basically what the law does that the legislator passed in May is it discriminates on the basis of wealth. And it works like this. When somebody finishes their sentence, including incarceration or supervision, oftentimes they have outstanding legal financial obligations, which can include court costs and fees. There's a constitutional provision from uh, 94 that says that the court system is actually funded by people, including defendants in criminal cases, um, who are required to to pay a whole series of costs and fines at the point of conviction. A lot of people, that can reach hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, just in costs and fees. There's, in fact, billions of dollars of debt owed in the state of Florida that the court clerks don't even expect to be able to recoup because oftentimes they, the fees are levied against people who can't afford to pay them. What the law passed in May does is it says until somebody can afford to pay off these debts, hundreds, thousands, um, in some cases, millions of dollars in restitution, they can't have their voting rights restored. And it really undermines what Florida voters voted for um, back in November when they passed Amendment 4. I think I think that's really telling that voters voted for voting. I mean, it sounds like a funny way to say it, but voters have consistently in Florida and other states wanted to expand access to the to the ballot, have wanted to expand the electorate and have wanted to make elections fairer, whether that's by passing independent redistricting commissions or or other mechanisms to bring more people into the voting public. What we've seen time and time again and uh, the legislation in Florida passed in May is another piece of this puzzle, is politicians wanting to restrict the right to vote, wanting to keep the pool of voters to those who elected them, basically, those who are predictable and those who they already represent. There, there's really been backlash, as we've seen in the, in the legislation in Florida, to expanding the electorate so that it's more inclusive. Um, so, so this bill would, would disenfranchise anybody with a prior conviction who has had their rights restored, um, or who would otherwise have their rights restored by Amendment 4 until they can pay off all fines and fees. So do you know how many people this could potentially affect? I know once Amendment 4 passed, there were people saying that upwards of 1.4 million people would have their rights restored. I'm assuming that this could potentially dwindle significantly. 
We expect 1.4 would qualify for restoration under Amendment 4. We don't have an exact number for how many people still owe legal financial obligations who would otherwise have their rights restored. The reason we don't know is there's no centralized database in Florida that can tell either the, the people seeking restoration themselves or others how much is owed. So there's this hodgepodge system of tracking fines and fees comprised of different court clerks, um, of outstanding restitution orders, of a number of different things. Um, and so we, we haven't been able to come up yet with a hard number of people who have outstanding LFOs and would be disenfranchised, but it's certainly within the hundreds of thousands. There's billions with a B dollars of debt owed to the court system that the court county clerks or the court clerks have said they don't even expect to have paid. There's billions of dollars uh, that are subject to collection. But in the meantime, while that funding is owed, um, there will be hundreds of thousands of people who, according to the law that was passed in May, won't be able to get their rights restored and participate in upcoming elections simply because of this debt. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about what's happening moving forward. Obviously, every election is important, and 2020 will be heavily scrutinized given the current political climate. I don't want to skip over 2019, and I don't mean to, but what are some specific issues surrounding voting rights, including felony disenfranchisement, that people should be paying attention to moving forward? Well, you know, we had two very big decisions out of the Supreme Court. One had to do with a citizenship question included in the in the census, and, and that has implications for getting the electorate counted, both for funding and other purposes, but also for redistricting going forward. The other one had to do with political gerrymandering and whether you could take claims of um, unfair district lines to court to have it decided that um, particular districts benefited one political party versus the other. Felony disenfranchisement and restoration, I think, is a huge issue. We're missing so many millions of people from the electorate who deserve to have their rights uh, restored and their voice heard simply because of of a mistake that they made um, sometimes decades ago. So that's a big issue. Election security is something that has obviously been in the news quite a bit recently and that uh, all localities should really be concerned about as they're modernizing the right to vote. But you know what, when we when we look at voter suppression as, as we do every day in the Voting Rights Project, there's a lot of small changes that can have a big effect on people's ability to cast their ballot. So taking away days of early voting, closing a particular polling place, passing a very strict ID law that um, legislators know people cannot comply with, changing the rules on student voting. There's all sorts of tinkering around with electoral systems, which can have a really heavy impact on people's ability to actually register vote and have their vote counted. So we watch very carefully on any policy or legal changes that could affect people's access to the ballot. And are there current cases that you're involved in or the ACLU specifically is litigating in courts around the country with regards to voter suppression? Yeah, we're, we're involved across the country um, on challenges to voter suppression. We were just involved in the census case. We have a number of gerrymandering cases. We, we really look at and challenge voter suppression across the country as it comes up. All right, great. Well, we'll continue to pay attention to what the ACLU Voting Rights Project is doing across America. Julie, we really appreciate your insight. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. 
Shortly after we spoke with Julie, Florida Governor Rob DeSantis signed the bill into law, and the ACLU, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and the Brenner Center for Justice at NYU Law immediately filed suit on behalf of several people formerly convicted of a felony. The 74-page lawsuit claims the new law punishes people who are unable to pay court fines and other associated fees, violating the 1st, 14th, 15th, and 24th Amendments of the Constitution. It also argues that the law will have a, quote, massive disenfranchising effect and result in sustained and likely permanent disenfranchisement for individuals without means. In a statement coinciding with the announcement of the lawsuit, Julie Ebenstein said, over a million Floridians were supposed to reclaim their place in the democratic process, but some politicians clearly feel threatened by greater voter participation. They cannot legally affix a price tag to someone's right to vote. Again, that was Julie Ebenstein, senior staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project. You can visit usnewsbeat.com for future updates. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Newsbeat Podcast. We'll be back soon with more traditional episodes so you can hear more from our fantastic independent artists. Once again, make sure to subscribe to Newsbeat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, when you do, please leave a review and rating because it helps us get noticed in the podcast feeds. And head over to usnewsbeat.com to check out some of our additional stories. There are articles that go along with each podcast that we produce. And check out our shop so you can pick up some Newsbeat swag. All right, guys. Thanks again. Peace. There were 1.17 million U.S. residents barred from voting due to a felony conviction in 1976. And in 2016, there were 6.1 million residents around the country who were barred for voting. The scale of disenfranchisement has increased just like the scale of imprisonment has increased over the last 30, 40 years or so. There's a war going on, going on. ain't nothing civil. nothing civil, every step of the way they try and trick you, and if you get in the way they try and trip you up, if this ain't Jim Crow then it's a tribute, they scream voter fraud that's almost a mitzu, they want them civil war ever laws to just continue, molded the system to work, this shit's official, do you know how it feels? to be wiped out what six mil do jerry's hanging heavy-handed gerrymandering foreign languages what's cracking what's really happening send them packing so many unfair advantages survive hell and can't vote because of some cannabis ain't that a slang and crack will kill your own kind plus add more injury to that when it's voting time we told a line like some good old fine citizens instead of being noble and sublime in our convictions